Hey, if you've got a Bible, meet me in 1 Peter chapter 2. I want to read to you a couple of verses that deal with milk and bricks. Seriously? Yeah, yeah, no, it's really the title of my message this morning, Leche and Legos. Two staples of the toddler America household. Check it out. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. You saw it. Milk was pretty easy to spot. Legos might have been a little bit more difficult, but Peter says you're being built up as a spiritual house, like a spiritual Lego set, the real-life Lego movie, you and Emmett and Wildstyle all walking around together. You all should really read your Bible more often. You'd find some pretty amazing stuff in there. God, thank you for your word. We just ask you now to do what only you can do. We have come to hear from you. Nobody's here to listen to pithy statements or ideas or theories. We want truth, and we know truth can only come from you. Some truth is hard, God, and so we're asking you to help us understand it for your glory and our joy. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1993, one of the most popular and successful ad campaigns in the history of mankind uh, launched with a commercial that some of you will remember. A history buff makes for himself a fantastic-looking, epic peanut butter sandwich. And about the time he bites into it, the phone rings with an opportunity for him to win $10,000 if he can answer the question, who shot Alexander Hamilton? Key in on posters and paintings of Alexander Hamilton and Aaron Burr, flintlock pistols. He knows the answer. And he tries to answer the guy on the phone, but the guy can't understand him because of the peanut butter coating his mouth. Does anybody remember the tagline of that commercial? Got milk, absolutely, got milk. With that brief introduction, the Got Milk ad campaign uh, launched and it became one of the most, if not the most successful financial endeavors in history. How many other commercials can you remember from 26 years ago? Fun fact, that commercial was created by a promising young filmmaker uh, named Michael Bay. If you've ever seen Transformers or Armageddon or The Rock or Bad Boys, um, all popular movies, none of you seem to know what I'm talking about. That's okay. Uh, But back to milk. Uh, I'm sure you can remember the previous slogan, milk, it does a body good. 
Good. Apparently nobody cared about their bodies or if milk did anything good because nobody was drinking it. And so a company developed this new slogan. They made commercials, developed publications, convinced a number of celebrities to wear a milk mustache. You guys remember seeing the milk mustaches? Yes, absolutely. It's estimated that this Got Milk crusade uh, cost roughly $23 million to roll out which sounds like a lot of money until you fully understand that that year alone, milk sales rose $255 million from the year before. In marketing, they call that a good deal. Uh, But times have changed. Milk has subsequently got a little bit of a bad rap today. Starting in 2011, milk sales started to decline again. People were hearing about these inhumane dairy conditions and hormones and ultra-pasteurizing and lakes of fecal matter and bacteria and salmonella and no amount of milk mustaches or celebrities can you bring you back from something like that. Yet what I find interesting is that for literally thousands of years, people have been drinking milk. You know, archaeologists have discovered uh, milk proteins in ceramic pots from, get this, 8,000 years ago. That's crazy. The Roman emperor Nero, who we're going to talk about next week because Peter actually talks about him in his letter. His wife used to keep a stable of 500 donkeys so she could bathe in donkey milk. Which if you've never bathed in donkey milk, I mean, (laughs) can you even say you're clean at that point? This is interesting. A 2009 study found that cows with names produce more milk than cows without names. What? Yeah, apparently old Bessie just needs to be, you know, loved and she'll pump out a few more gallons of milk if you know her name. Also worth pointing out, the average cow can produce nearly 350,000 glasses of milk in their lifetime, about eight gallons a day. Not even Hulk Hogan drank that much. Uh, Their udders can hold up to 50 pounds of milk. That's utterly amazing. Come (laughs) That's good. That's really good. I don't care what you say. That's funny right there. But utterly amazing. So the reason I bring this up is because Peter compares our spiritual lives to that of a baby who craves milk. He says, if you've tasted that the Lord is good, then you're going to long for his pure spiritual milk and grow up into salvation. Here's how I want you to write it down. Just because you're made new doesn't mean you're made mature. Just because you're made new doesn't mean you're made mature. I don't know how much thought you've given this, but according to Peter, we start out our spiritual lives as babies. And God wants us to grow up into our salvation. Or said another way, just because you're made new doesn't mean you're made mature. So think about this. Peter who wrote this, is pretty much like the CEO of the 12 disciples. He is one of Jesus' closest friends and in a lot of ways is largely responsible for the church as we know it today. Another one of Jesus' friends, a guy named John, records for us a conversation that Jesus had with Peter. And in John 21, 17, Jesus tells Peter to, quote, feed my sheep. This, of course, is hyperbole. Jesus did not own any sheep. He's talking about 
people. So one of the ways that Peter feeds people is by preaching and writing letters. And in arguably one of Peter's most important letters, the letter that we're reading from today and we're spending eight weeks looking through, he says we've got to grow up into salvation. Why would he say that? Why does Peter feel like it's necessary for people to understand this growing up process? Well, in order for us to put this all into context, we have to back up a couple sentences because chapters and verses were not added to your Bible until hundreds of years after, in fact, and this letter had no demarcations in that way. And Peter is actually picking up on a thought from a few sentences earlier. Look at this. He says, since you've been born again, made new, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. And this was the good news that was preached to you. So, therefore, put away all malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander like newborn infants. Long for the pure spiritual milk that you may grow up into salvation. Apparently, people back then were a lot like people today. And they thought that once Jesus made you new then you would never struggle again. But that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel, the good news of God, is that since Jesus has saved you from your sins, now you have the opportunity to get to grow up into your salvation. I'll say it like this. Uh, Being made new is up to God. Being made mature is up to you. Paul says the same thing in Philippians 2.12 when he says that you have to work out your salvation. So again, why is this a big deal? It's a big deal because you might be 40 years old physically, but when it comes to the things of God, you've still got a binky and a blankie. You need to be in a big boy bed by now and you're not quite there. And really the question I think God is asking us to consider is where am I at spiritually? Where are you in terms of growing up into your salvation? To answer that, I want us to pick up on the analogy that Peter first introduced us to, this idea of being infants. Okay, so here's what I know about infants. Number one, infants are unstable. Unstable, not just in terms of their physical walking ability, but moreover, infants are unstable emotionally. They're shallow. They're superficial. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just saying there's not much depth to them emotionally because life hasn't really happened for them yet. So sorrow can only go so deep. Like the other day, I was trying to get Lenny into the van to go to the store. She's two. She didn't want to sit in her car seat. She wanted to sit in the back seat because brother and sister get there. But, you know, I'm grabbing her, trying to buckle her in, and she's wailing and crying. And I say, you want some M&Ms when we get to the store? some num-nums, what happens? Tears off. She's fine. Immediately stops crying like nothing. Yeah, I want some M&Ms. What's the deal? She's unstable. Very unstable. All kids are. (laughs) Look at yourself. Are you spiritually in the same condition? Do you find yourself, as long as everything is going well, that God loves me? God cares for me, of course. I've been made new. But the moment something bad happens or they go poorly, why, God, have you forsaken me? 
How could God be so cruel to me? In vain I've kept his commands, my heart pure. Do you find yourself excited at first? New birth can be that. It's very exciting. It's like this weight has been lifted off of you. It's, it's very amazing. But then years later, you come to find yourself just kind of, nah, maybe a little cast down. Perhaps you've heard an amazing sermon before, uh, probably not, you know, here, but like online, you know, I, I get that. I mean, that's fine. But you've heard something and that you really got you fired up and then you're like, I'm actually going to do something about this. This was amazing. That word was for me. And then you have lunch and that was the greatest hamburger you've ever had, you know, but, but you know, I don't know what else I could do. And so uh, now these things begin to fade. Maybe you've cried tears of repentance, but you've never really changed, which is what that word repentance means. It means to change your direction. If so, you're a child. You're unstable, which, listen, that's all right. Everybody starts out as a child. That's why I'm glad you're here. My job is to help you not stay there. But here's what else I know about infants. Number two, infants are self-centered. Self-centered. Well, what I want when I want it, what's one of the first words a child learns? Mine. Mine. Don't touch that. That's mine. That's not fair. Why is that? Because they're selfish. They're rude, greedy, and inconsiderate. I'm guessing more than a few of you have been trying to talk to me at the very end of service, back in the back, and one of my kids come running in and saying, dad, 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 and they don't care about you or what you're going through. They just want my attention, or more likely my phone. Uh, so I have to maintain eye contact with you, you know, give them the stiff arm and say, not right now, wait your turn. Uh, in the same way, a lot of us are like that. We kind of interrupt people. We listen just so that we can figure out when it's our turn to talk. We don't actually hear people and what they're saying. The children are like that. Children don't understand why people don't drop everything they're doing and move heaven and earth in order to change uh, their schedules in order to meet the kids' needs. You expect children to be that way. But it's also how you start off as a Christian. Tend to get bent out of shape. People tend to feel like, ah, nobody's noticing me. People are mistreating me. This is the typical American church, by the way, filled with people who are always getting their feelings hurt, always feeling like I'm being misused, wondering why people don't drop everything and do uh, huddle around them to meet their needs, and why is the music loud, and why are the lights down, and that's typical church because a typical Christian is a baby but doesn't realize it. Infants don't realize there's something wrong. Infants don't realize that unless I do something about this, I'm going to stay here for a long time because you can be made new and not be made Mature. We'll talk more about that in a second. But number three, infants have short attention spans. Short attention spans. You ever take a kid to a movie before? If not, good luck. That's one of those things where when you're not a parent and you get to the theater and you see kids and you're like, my kids will never act like that. And then you have kids and you're like, good Lord Almighty, forgive me. Because if there is any sort of plot development or character development, 
these monsters start kicking the seat in front of them and throwing popcorn up in the air and crawling around in the aisles and trying to get over the seat and eat Skittles off the floor. And you're what in the world? How are you not dead, child? But they need action. They need entertainment all the time. I don't, if you don't have kids, sometimes just watch a kid's show and notice how much yelling happens on the show. Dora's always screaming at everybody. Sophia can't figure life out and starts yelling on people. And the commercials are always 10 times louder than the actual show. Why? Short attention spans. You know, kids need uh, action all the time. They need vibrant colors, uh, loud noises, quickness, over-exaggeration. How often have you heard as a parent, I'm bored. So quick tangent, parents, let me just take that burden off of you and tell you that nowhere in the Bible does it ever say your job as a parent is to not allow your children to be bored. In fact, boredom is maybe one of the best gifts you can give your child because what's it do? It forces them to use their imagination and figure life out. That's a different message. When it comes to uh, spirituality, do you find yourself with a short attention span? Quickly bored. Uh, Easily bored. Paul wrote a letter to a whole church in 1 Corinthians full of infants who act like this. He says, you want miracles. You want quick answers. You want God to come through in explosive ways, but that's for babies. That's not how this works. Mature Christians, the emphasis is on character and discipline, and they focus on truth and righteousness. I hope I can hold your attention while I'm up here, but I know part of that's on you as much as part of it is on me. If you're growing up into your salvation, you're willing to understand that Christianity is a long obedience in the same direction. Christianity is constantly studying the Word and getting deep into yourself and serving other people and doing your duty even when you don't feel like it and even when your feelings are flat. With children, everything has to be exciting all the time. As soon as something is boring, off they go. So be honest. Are you a child spiritually? Are you able to stick to the disciplines of the Christian life? Do you jump from this particular thing to this most exciting thing because you need to have your motivation stirred? Do you get real bummed out when God doesn't come through with special effects in your life? Do you need an entertainer? Are you willing to listen to someone who will simply teach you the Word of God? Now hear me, I'm not trying to scold you right now. I'm trying to make the point that everybody starts off as kids. The only thing that would be absolutely ridiculous is for us to not know where we are. If we don't know where we are, then we don't know how to grow. And if we don't know how to grow, then we won't. And God asks us to grow. I'll say it like this. You can't correct what you're unwilling to confront. If you aren't willing to confront the fact that you are in fact a child, then of course you'll never correct it. You might be a kid and just now realizing it, that's fine. You gotta know we all start off as kids. Many of us are on different parts of the journey. Some of us are still babies and infants and some of us are teenagers and we're all still growing. But just because you're made new doesn't mean you're made mature. It was never okay 
is to not grow. And what's not okay is to criticize somebody when you're still in diapers yourself. So what's the solution? Well, according to Peter, we've got to enhance our spiritual appetite. He says, crave, desire, long for the pure spiritual milk so that you can grow. Now, what's he talking about? What is this alleged pure spiritual milk? It's the Word of God. It's what he just got done talking about in chapter 1. And he wants to differentiate himself by noting that this Word of God is the pure spiritual milk, not that powdered junk your mom used to buy at Food for Less to save some money and water it all down. No, we're supposed to be drinking full-on farm-to-table, utter-to-mouth, vitamin D, whole, Brahms milk. (laughs) Right? Ain't no better milk than Brahms milk. Come on, somebody. Like, that's good stuff. Uh, But this is why you need to read your Bible. It's the unfiltered Word of God. Please don't simply take my word for it. You need to wrestle with it yourself and with other people, which is why I feel so passionately about you getting into a small group so that you, when you study the Word of God, you're not making it to fit whatever it is you're going through. You're actually dialoguing with other people about what's going on. Uh, Kids read stuff by themselves and think that they understand it. And when you do read your Bible... Assuming you do, you'll discover that there are dozens and dozens of examples of God's Word being compared to food. Here's a couple. Prophet Jeremiah, your words were found and I ate them. Paul told Timothy to be nourished with the words of the faith. David wrote in Psalm 119, how sweet your words taste to me. They're sweeter than honey. Peter here says, once you've tasted the Lord, you're going to crave pure spiritual milk. Like a spiritual junkie, you're going to be looking for your next fix because you don't want to ever taste anything else. Once you've tasted that the Lord is good, nothing else is going to satisfy you. So when Laura and I first got married, her favorite meal to cook was Hot Pockets. (laughs) I wish I was joking about that right now. To this day, if I smell a Hot Pocket, I will gag. (laughs) Hot Pockets in the house, Hot Pockets with a mouse, Hot Pockets in a box, Hot Pockets with a fox. Just thinking about the HPs give me PTSD. (laughs) You know, anxious. Uh, But then something happened a couple years ago where Laura became like an amazing cook. She started to... (laughs) No, for real. She started watching Food Network and reading like Pioneer Woman. And I don't know if she just fell back in love with me or if she hated Hot Pockets herself. But like she can now, I will eat anything she cooks. She's fantastic. Matter of fact, about once a year, she makes this uh, dessert, a peach cobbler. I will kill a man. Like no, I'm not like Hunger Games. I will bow and arrow somebody to get this peach cobbler. Point being, now that I've tasted what is good, I want to go back to Hot Pockets anymore. And part of the reason you don't crave the pure spiritual milk is because you're still filling up on Hot Pockets. Junk food. 
And talking about malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander and mmm, that's good stuff. I'm too busy dining on my deceit, scrolling through my slander feed, posting on my malice page, gramming on my envy pics. You're so distracted with your sack lunch, you haven't savored the fact that God tastes better than sin. You know the word deceit here? It's actually a fishing term, which makes sense. Peter's a fisherman. He knows all about fish. But if you think about it, what are you doing when you go fishing? Trying to deceive the fish. Trying to distract them, cleverly hiding an aspect of the truth, a gigantic hook meant to kill them. And a lot of us like to do that spiritually. We cleverly deceive ourselves into thinking this is a good meal and we settle for lures instead of life. The result is Christians around walking just angry all the time, hating life, trying to point out everybody else's moral failure, the decline of the country and back in my day and the music too and the carpet and everybody's angry and then your bitterness will kill your appetite for his sweetness. Peter says, I've tasted that the Lord is good. And when you do, you're not going to want anything else. Make no mistake, Jesus came to this earth to bring joy, to bring life, to help you find freedom, to help you have a good life. See, that's the other thing that's super interesting about this passage because Peter makes the important case for us about growing up into salvation, but all of that happens after we've met Jesus. And craving the pure spiritual milk happens after we've been created new. And what's he say that we've been created new? What happens when we grow up on this unadulterated, uncontaminated milk of the word of God? You become a living stone. What? Like, that's the best thing you could come up with? A living stone? I mean, I get that Peter, it means rock, and that's kind of like his nickname, and so, like, he's near and dear to the rocks. But, like, if we're going to transform into something, you know, like, Peter, have you seen a bald eagle before? That would be pretty epic. How about a dinosaur? You know, if we're going to transform a living stone, what about a lion, Peter? That would be cool. Nope. Living stone. But then as I really got into this and started studying, it occurred to me that Peter's actually way ahead of his time on this. Again, like what I was talking about before, what Peter's really meaning by comparing us to living stone is living Legos. We are the living Lego pieces that God is using to build his temple. Why is that so revolutionary? Well, let's say you have six uh, standard size five standard size Lego blocks as I have here, four by two in the patent of Legos. This is the standard Lego brick. Uh, I can pretend like I have six. Uh, any guesses at how many different structures I could make just by moving the pieces all around into different areas? You can go up and down. Uh, hundreds, thousands, anybody think uh, hundreds of thousands where you know you can just turn them? Nine hundred and fifteen million one hundred and three thousand seven hundred and sixty-five different combinations from six standard Lego bricks. So when you roll this out into the spiritual realm, God is not limited by four by two bricks. 
Some of y'all are four by fours, and some of you are two by twos, and God is expertly handcrafting each one of you into his spiritual temple, a temple that's never done, by the way, because some of you grow up into salvation, right? That's what we just got done talking about. And you might start out as a little one-by-one stud, but then with the help of other people and the pure spiritual milk that you're dying on, you become one of those mega-huge, like, 42-by-38, you know, pieces, one of the foundational pieces. But all of these pieces have to fit together, so God might move you to this spot, and God moves somebody else over to this spot as they begin to grow and as they become a different piece. And he's crafting altars and staircases and windows and doors and what gets us into trouble is when we start placing bricks ourselves. And notice that Peter makes the distinction that Jesus is the first living stone. He'll go on to say that he's the chief cornerstone, the stone that sets the angle and direction for the rest of the building, the foundational thing that everything, all the weight uh, lands on. And, And then he says, and when you come to Jesus, the first living stone You also become a living stone. Ruminate on that for a second. God doesn't put you in his temple because of how great of a stone you are. He's only losing living stones who've been transformed by the living stone that changed shape and size and he wants to move you here and move you there. So I don't know if you've ever gone to see a, you know, a hand-hewn, cut stone castle or some kind of building where all the pieces fit nicely together and it looks pretty, but they're dead. It's not moving. It has no soul. It never changes. And that's the difficulty with living stones. Living stones can wriggle out of their locations. Living stones can think to themselves, oh, I don't belong here. I'm a pretty good foundational piece, if you ask me. And they set themselves whenever they want. They jack up the entire building. And pretty soon it doesn't look like a temple anymore. It looks like a wall. And walls are designed to keep everybody out. But that's not what God is building God is handcrafting a living church for people to come to and see his glory and his power and his beauty. And when people show up to this living temple that is each one of you and I, they will see God in us and see his joy and his beauty and people are gonna want to come to that place. His house isn't designed to keep people out. God's house is designed to let people in. That's why Peter goes on in verse 11 to say, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners, aliens, outlanders, as our word again, to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very souls. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors, which is to imply that there would be an improper way to live. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. In other words, they'll look at you and see God's temple. They'll see God's goodness. Write it down like this. The best way to grow vertically is to live horizontally. The best way to grow in your relationship with God vertically is to serve other people and live horizontally. Now, I know you don't have any more blanks to fill in and you feel like we're about to close, but pay attention for just a second. 
Notice that the sins Peter lists in verse 1 are all sins against other people. Malice, envy, slander, deceit, even hypocrisy is about fooling other people. But then he contrasts that and says the antidote to those things is to live in such a way that's proper among your unbelieving neighbors. That is to say, spiritual growth doesn't require more knowledge. It requires more action. If you would do what you already know, you would grow. Just like my kids would do what they already know and what I'm telling them to do and eat healthy, they'd grow. Drink water, stay away from the sugar, lay off pops, snack on vegetables. The problem is they don't really want it that bad because they're nearsighted. And your growth is directly proportionate to your desire. If you don't want to grow, you won't. It's really the question before each one of us today. Do you really desire to grow? Because you already know that you're supposed to read your Bible and come to church and give away the first tenth of your income and get around other believers and serve other people and pray. And the problem is this war within our souls that Peter talks about. And so it's not my job to make you mature. It's my job to remind you of how sweet the Lord tastes and give you some hope that if you'll start doing things His way, your life will get better. And when you've tasted that the Lord is good, you don't ever want to go back. And so let me close this this morning with some practical ways that you can live horizontally. I don't know if uh, you saw this, but Chip Gaines wrote an article on this, their Magnolia blog, and it's about how to be nice. It's called We Believe in Kindness. I'd encourage you to read it. But in addition to the article, he listed out some helpful examples of how you can be kind to one another, and I, sh- I thought I'd share them uh, with you because it's a good reminder. He says, ask a, stri- a stranger how they're doing. Make time to call an old friend. Buy a grocery store gift card, give it to a family in need. Donate blood. Cook a meal for your neighbor. Thank a veteran for their service. Adopt an animal from a shelter. You want to grow vertically? Start living horizontally. Kids, help the custodian pick up trash in the hallway at school. Write and send get well cars to children at St. Jude's Children's Hospital. Write an encouraging note. Leave it in a friend's backpack or locker. Sit by somebody new at lunch. Listen, this isn't rocket science. Uh, Just because you're made new doesn't mean you're made mature. You've got to do some things to grow in your maturity. And what we do to grow in our maturity is getting closer to God by serving other people. Love God with your whole heart. Love people as yourself. These are the two things that Jesus commanded us to do. The point is, when you're a living stone, it requires all the other living stones around you. And so we've got to do this together and be unified in our mission to grow up into our salvation, to spur one another on in love and good deeds. That's the point of our lives. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the freedom that we even have to come and gather into this place. We're asking you now just to reveal to us where we're still infantile in our understanding of who you are and what you want for our lives. Speak to us in such a way that we can be encouraged 
It's not often encouraging to think of yourself as immature, but God, we want to surrender that to you so that we can be built up into our salvation. As we pray over this and reflect over this, I'm just asking you to really consider where you're at. Are you an infant? Are you unstable? Are you self-centered? Do you have a short attention span? Turn that over to God. Ask Him how you can work on this. God, we long for the pure spiritual milk of Your Word. Help give each person here a passion and desire for reading Scripture, for talking about it with other people, growing in their understanding of you. Help each person live here properly among their unbelieving neighbors so that we can bring more glory to you. And God, if there's any person here who has never surrendered their life to you, just implore you to move in their life right now. And if that's you, just Surrender in your heart to God. Say, I believe in your son Jesus, that he died for my sins, that I'm made new, and I'm going to work on my maturity. God, thank you for saving us. Give us life. Let us leave here today being able to make a difference in somebody else's life. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.